0: Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Well, what a joy to be together this morning. We've been singing about it all morning already. This is, uh, this is what it's all about, being a pastor, just so you know, right? Is to be able to come on Easter Sunday and, and, and proclaim this incredible news don't you love to have good news to share? Don't you love to have, uh, you know, exciting things to, to reveal to people? And uh, I don't know if, you know, we had a, a good Friday service. I don't know if you've just been living in fear and, and fretting ever since, but uh, Christ is risen, okay? <laughs> and uh, I understand this is something like we already kind of know, right? This is not like I'm just now revealing this for the first time. Most of you know this and and have known this and and probably many of you raised in it. And yet I hope that you're still excited about it, right? I hope that this is the kind of news that we don't tire of of hearing or talking about or proclaiming to others. What a privilege is ours to know Christ and to know the resurrection and to be able to come here and and look a little bit deeper into it and just simply celebrate together. Those of you who are... uh, who are regulars on Sunday know that we, we've been in the Gospel of John together. In fact, you can turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 2, this morning. And we want to kind of jump back into to chapter 2 and uh, use that as kind of a springboard to, to talk about this message of the resurrection. In fact, I have a little bit of, a, of an outline for you. You can just kind of mentally keep in your head or jot it down if you're taking notes. We're going to talk about a sign being requested, a sign requested and rejected. We're going to talk about a sign prophesied and a sign received, a sign requested and rejected, a sign prophesied and received. And we know, having been in the gospel of John, that John kind of builds his gospel around seven key miracles of Christ. And our setting here, if you remember, is that Christ has already performed his first miracle at the wedding in Cana. And uh, now he has just, uh, let's say, aggressively cleansed the temple, right? And John chapter 2, verse 15 says, he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And so then the... The Jewish authorities, and I suppose probably some of these uh, unhappy business owners, right? They're shocked by Christ's bold act in the cleansing of the temple. And in, in verse 18, they ask him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? This is a sign requested. They basically want to know, hey, buddy, who do you think you are? They want some proof. They want to they check Jesus' ID, Understand like uh, who he thinks he is and why he thinks he has the authority to do this. And we kind of understand this, right? We have to have some, some proof of who we are or our credentials at different times and places. I'm getting ready to, uh, to fly out Monday. I can't wait to go through airport security. It's uh, just one of the joys of my life. No, look, we, we hate that, but also we're kind of glad that it's there, right? We wouldn't want just like no security, uh, same thing, you know, I think I go to the hospital, they have those little badges, you know, some of you guys have the, and they got the thing, you know, they got the thing with the badge. And I'm glad because, you know, if I go for surgery, I wouldn't want just like anyone bored, you know, as a hobby, just on a Tuesday, wandering in and doing brain surgery or something, right? We, we want some credentials, we want some ID, we want some proof. Now, we had to do this the other day, we're in the, in the process of uh, adopting, and so we had to go and get fingerprinted. Apparently they want to know, that you actually are who you say you are before they give you a child. And so this is kind of a rare thing for me. I'm not used to going, you know, and, and getting fingerprinted. Corey does it all the time for just different crimes and things that she... No, that's not... No, we, 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 not a not a normal occurrence for us. In fact, my sons had to do it. This is their first time because some of them are 18, so they had to go and get fingerprinted. So I was watching to make sure they didn't know how the process worked. You know, they make sure that hadn't happened before and I didn't know about it. And really this request for a sign, this request for, you know, what, what is your authority is not an uncommon thing in the life of Christ. John chapter 6, verse 30 says, they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Matthew 12, 38 said, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, listen, we know when it's the scribes and Pharisees, this is not generally a just really genuine, heartfelt inquiry into Jesus. We just want to know you more, right? No, that's not what's happening. They're they're trying to trap him. They're they're trying to trick him in some way. Uh, Matthew 16, 4 says the Pharisees and Sadducees had asked again for a sign and Christ responded, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. And in Matthew 21, verse 27, Christ again refused to answer the question of his authority. But it's interesting, because remember I said just a few minutes ago that the Gospel of John is built around the miracles, the signs of Jesus. And the truth is that Christ had given many signs. Not yet, it wasn't time yet. (laughs) They haven't haven't even had a chance to fall asleep yet. (laughs) Christ is doing signs. He's doing miracles all over the place. But his signs are being rejected. Matthew 11, 20 to 21 says, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And so it seems that Christ refused to perform, right? To perform signs or miracles on demand or or to answer questions, the answer to which could be plainly seen as to who he was and what his authority was. And even when he did give them signs, what did they do? They attributed the work to Satan. The problem isn't a lack of signs. It's a failure to recognize the presence of the Messiah among them. Remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? What does the rich man want to do as he's being tormented in the afterlife? He wants Lazarus to be sent back from the dead to warn his brothers. But what does Abraham say to him? If they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. <laughs> hey, really? I mean, if someone rises from the dead, everyone would have to believe. Really? And here we are, celebrating the resurrection of Christ from the dead. It's not an issue of a lack of evidence, it's not an issue of signs, it's a matter of the heart. Look at John chapter 20, verse 30. It says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. When John says signs, again, this is synonymous with, uh, uh, is a synonym for miracles. And we know that there are many other miracles because we have many of them recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. And we can look at a list of, of miracles that occur in the Synoptics that are not present in John the cleansing of the leper, the healing of the centurion's servant, the healing of two blind men, the casting out of the demon possessed, blind, and mute man. Uh, you know, all of these different things that we can go through. But John thinks that even his. Seven miracles that he records are more than enough. Look at verse 31. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John makes his purpose known. He makes it clear. Remember when we started in the Gospel of John, I told you one commentator refers to the Gospel of John as a propaganda document. And I kind of like that because he's just saying, like, John's very clear. Like, I'm proselytizing here. I'm trying to convert you. I'm trying to get you and to reel you in and to get you to follow Jesus Christ. Consider this sampling of incredible deeds and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, the Messiah prophesied for thousands of years in the Old Testament. And he's calling them to believe. That's why the word believe appears 98 times in the Gospel of John. Saving faith in the book of John carries the idea of trust. An attitude of complete reliance on Christ and his work alone. So back in chapter 2, verse 18. And they're basically asking this question, who do you think you are, right? And Christ answers with a, a shocking statement to them, misunderstood by them. But, but to us, it holds deep spiritual truth. There's deep doctrine here. This is a sign prophesied. Christ says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And we know Christ is referring to the, the destruction of his body and to his resurrection from the dead. And look at verses 20 to 22, the, the Jews miss the true meaning of this prophecy. They, they completely don't understand it. In fact, they don't... Uh, turn over to Mark chapter 14. We'll, we'll see how much they, they don't understand this. Because much later, years later, they're still not understanding it. This is one of the accusations that they make when Christ is on trial. Mark 14, verse 58. We heard him say... I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. They still don't really understand what that means, but it must have been something bad. He's talking about destroying the temple, and so they bring this up as an accusation against Christ. But John knows what Christ meant. Well, at least in hindsight, John knows what Christ meant. By the time he wrote his gospel, he knew what Christ meant. And he tells us, kind of as a maybe this is like a whispered aside, right? He was speaking of the temple of his body, right? He tells us in verse 21, he's talking about the resurrection. Alfred Edersheim has a monumental book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, and he references this interaction here, and he says, Jesus, then and there, knew it all, foresaw it all. His answer told it. It was in parabolic language, which only after the event would be made clear. As for the sign sought by an evil and adulterous generation, he had only one sign to give Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Thus he met their challenge for a sign by the challenge of a sign Crucify him, and he would rise again. Let them suppress the Christ, he would triumph. A sign which they understood not, and by making it the ground of their false charge in his final trial, themselves unwittingly fulfilled. A plan is unfolding. Christ knows exactly what the plan is. Christ understands all the pieces that will fall in place along the way for his death and payment for sin and resurrection to be accomplished. And this is an important aspect to the Easter story that we find in the Gospel of John. Turn over to John chapter 13. Although Christ despairs of the pain of the the agony of the cross and and bearing the weight of the sin of the world, Christ knew what was going to happen. Christ knew about his glorious resurrection. He understood the plan. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, Before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour would come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His ministry, of, uh, uh, his ministry to, the, to the disciples is, is winding down. He's fulfilling Uh, what he was called to do in respect to his ministry to them on this earth. Look at verses 3 and 4. John introduces his passion narrative as Christ is about to wash the disciples' feet. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. One commentator says, in other words, John is at pains to show that the cross was not a dead end, but a station on Jesus' way back home to the Father. This is why he strikes a triumphant tone from the outset of narrating the crucifixion. The Father had given all things into Jesus' hands, and Jesus is on his way back to the pre-existent glory that he enjoyed with the Father. Just like the writer of Hebrews says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Christ understands all of this. He knows all of this. He knows the victory that is coming. He understands the resurrection. Of course, at this time, even his disciples still don't understand what's happening. It's a favorite pastime of Christians to, uh, you know, malign the disciples, right? I mean, what is wrong with these guys? When are they going to figure it out? Right? Well, you know, they weren't in your Sunday school class and uh, they didn't have the entire, you know, New Testament bound, you know, leather bound study Bible, right? So we give them a little bit of a break here. They're figuring it out as we go. Notice in John chapter 2 and verse 22. It says so. When he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Wouldn't you love to be there for that aha moment? I mean, this has got to be the greatest light bulb going off over someone's head moment in all of history. Like, oh, Okay, now, you know, I wonder which was the first disciple, you know? I'm sure somebody was like, oh, I, I got it all along. I, I totally, I, I knew it back at the temple. When he was cleansing the temple, I knew it then, right? I mean, this is incredible. Don't, you know, those of you who are teachers, you, you understand this moment, right? That moment when the light comes on in a child's eyes, you know, you've been, you know, spending weeks just teaching to like a brick wall, and then all of a sudden, one student gets a concept, and you're like, this is why I'm a teacher, right? I love that moment of understanding. Well, the reality is that the cleansing of the temple, they didn't understand what Christ was saying. It took the light of the resurrection to illuminate it for them. They didn't really even see at that point the need for his death. So they certainly didn't think along the lines of resurrection until after the event. They didn't understand the scriptures that speak of the Messiah's suffering and death. And as we mentioned, Friday evening, When Christ was taken, his disciples fled. And after his death, Christ is taken from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea, a rich, prominent member of the Sanhedrin and a disciple of Christ. Isaiah 53, 9 had prophesied that the Messiah would be with the rich at his death. And John's gospel also says that Nicodemus, who we'll look at in John chapter 3, Nicodemus helped in the burial, and both Joseph and Nicodemus risked their reputations and probably risked their lives to give their master a costly, honorable burial. And three days after his death, as the guards protected the tomb, while any other man would be decomposing, there was an earthquake. And the guards were so afraid of the angels that they, it says, became like dead men. And they ran off only to be paid off later to make up a story or to remain silent. But a group of faithful women came to anoint Christ. They come to anoint Christ, but but he isn't there. And the angels proclaim the greatest news possible. He is risen! The angels reminded the women that Jesus had told them in Galilee that he must suffer and be crucified at the hands of sinners, but he would rise on the third day. And just as a side note about these godly women, in the first century, women were not even eligible to testify in a Jewish court of law. But Christianity is countercultural, and it affirms the dignity And the vital role of women in ministry and their value, the value of of their witness. And the women ran back to the disciples and, and told them the news. And most of them didn't believe. And all the women say, of course. But Peter and John raced to the tomb to find it empty and still... The disciples didn't fully understand, although believing, didn't didn't understand completely the resurrection prophecies. They they returned home confused. Mary Magdalene stayed behind at the tomb. Believing someone had taken the body, she was the first person to whom the resurrected Lord appeared. He appeared to the other women who worshipped him, told them he would meet his disciples in Galilee, And to make sure that everyone knew of his resurrection, Jesus allowed himself to be seen by many people.
1: So not only was
0: the tomb empty, but the disciples actually saw the resurrected Christ. On at least 10 separate occasions, after he left the tomb, he he appeared to Peter. He appeared to the two men on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to the 10 disciples, eight days later to all 11 disciples to seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee, to 500 followers at once, to James, to those who were present at his ascension. Luke says in Acts chapter 1, He presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days. And even after his ascension, we see the resurrected Christ at the martyrdom of Stephen. Of Stephen at the, the conversion of Paul and again he appears to John on the Isle of Patmos and yet we're remembering that even the most faithful followers had not expected this they didn't expect a resurrection their hopes and dreams were centered on the person of Jesus and then he died now what The disciples had deserted Christ, and now it seems they're hiding out in the upper room in apparent defeat, trying to figure out what in the world is next for them. And Scripture is clear that if the story ends with Jesus' death, Christianity never gets off the ground. Heritage Bible Church never exists. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Pick it up in verse 14, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. I can hardly read this. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there's no good news. Christian teaching is in vain. The apostles are false witnesses our faith is worthless we're still in our sins all the believers that we love who who have died are lost not to be seen again and christians are to be most pitied of all men paul says in romans chapter 4 verse 25 that christ was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. And so without the resurrection, there is no gospel of justification. But the resurrection did happen. Verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Jump up to chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 15:1. Now I make known to you, brethren. The gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures." and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. The resurrection did take place. Jesus is proved to be Lord and God. And look at the change that the resurrection made. What causes the disciples to go from running scared to on-fire missionaries turning the world upside down? What causes this supposed startup religion of Christianity to survive even after its namesake is killed? What changed Peter from triple Christ denier to super-Christian christian What moved Thomas from doubt to proclaiming, my Lord and my God? What took Jesus' brothers, his own brothers, from disbelief to disciples? His brother James calls himself a bond servant of Christ. Can you imagine what it would take (laughs) to get a brother to say that? The answer is the resurrection. Nothing but the resurrection itself can explain the dramatic change in Christ's disciples. A change so great that they're willing to suffer and to die for their testimony of it. These men and women are radically changed when they finally understood Christ's prophecy. The sign of his resurrection was received it was received by many. And this resurrection is the climax of the Bible and the heart of the gospel. And everything before looks forward to this moment and everything since looks back. And so today is a day of hope. And even as we think about the transformation in these men and women, I think specifically of, of Christ's family, of his brother's. I just want to take this opportunity to say that if you have loved ones who do not know Christ, there is still hope. As long as they draw breath, there is hope. And can we notice that Christ's own brothers are not believing in him? Beloved, if you have family members, if you have children who are unbelieving, this is not because of some failing on your part. This is a matter of the heart between them and the Lord. And so we continue to pray that they would come to see the resurrected Christ for who he is, just as his own brothers did. What is it about the resurrection that really grabs you? Those of you who are uh, small group leaders know every every week I I put out a discussion guide for our small group leaders. And uh, one of the questions that's there every week is... What attributes of God were on display in the passage that we looked at this morning? So we might ask, what attributes of God are on display in the resurrection? Maybe we should ask, what attributes of God are not on display in the resurrection, right? This is a long list. What hope, what comfort is found in this great doctrine? Paul Tripp points out some some particular things to love about the empty tomb. First of all, the empty tomb reveals that God is faithful. All the way back in Genesis, right? God promised a Savior to defeat sin and Satan. And he did. Christ accomplished this by his crucifixion and resurrection. God didn't forget his promise, he ordered the events of history so that in the fullness of time, Christ would come and fulfill the promise. God is faithful. And Jesus rose on Sunday, the first day of the week, and this is why we meet faithfully on Sundays, just as the early church did. We call it the Lord's Day because it celebrates the day that our Lord was resurrected. And Every time we gather on a Sunday morning, it should be a reminder a celebration of the miraculous resurrection of our Lord and the faithfulness of our God. And maybe if we start to think of Sundays, every Sunday as Resurrection Sunday, there will be a little less stress and turmoil and you know uh, conflict in the family as we're getting ready and trying to get everyone out the door and into the car, right? We'll pull up, you know, and all right, get in there. Everybody act like we like each other and get along, right? Look, we come every Sunday and... and Understanding the pressures and the stresses and the trials and, and the hardships of life, and yet we come to celebrate this glorious hope every Sunday morning. Really, every day that we wake up in newness of life as a child of God, we are a testimony of the resurrection. Another thing that trip points out that the empty tomb reveals that God is powerful. Can there be any better demonstration of power and authority than to exercise power over death? In omnipotence, Christ took off his grave clothes, walked out of the tomb. He is able to accomplish all his purposes. Charles Ryrie says, The resurrection of Christ has always been the joyous, captivating, and motivating truth for the church. One of the simplest prayers and earliest creeds of the church was Maranatha, our Lord come. No one could say that who denied the resurrection of his Lord. It affirmed in the clearest way that Jesus is the living and coming Lord. The empty tomb reveals that God is loving. Tripp says, why would God go to such an extent to help us? Why would he care to notice us, let alone rescue us? Why would he ever sacrifice his own son? Not only is God loving, he is the definition of love. You and I need to recognize that his love was not motivated by what he saw in us, but by what is inside him. Even when we're unloving and rebellious, full of ourselves, wanting our own way, God is still loving. He delights in transforming us by his grace and rescuing us by his love. The empty tomb guarantees victory. Henry Morris says, death is our greatest enemy. Death has conquered all men but Christ. No man is wise enough to outwit death, or wealthy enough to purchase freedom from death, or strong enough to vanquish death. The grave always wins the victory. And every person, sooner or later, returns to dust. On the other hand, if the res- resurrection is really a demonstrable fact, then not only are Christ's claims about himself vindicated, he really is who he said he was but so are his promises death is not after all the great victor but a defeated foe first Peter 1 says he has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and we want to allow our Easter celebration to serve as a reminder That everyone who is in Christ will be raised. Death is abolished and deprived of its sting. Believers receive glorified, imperishable bodies like Christ. And God will lead us in victory through him. Back to 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verses 20 to 26. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that those are who, who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. This is our glorious hope. This is our incredible future secured by the resurrection of Christ. Christ as the first fruits. Jump down to verse 51. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, this great uh, church nursery verse. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Okay, it's not about the church nursery. It's about us. And yes, death is coming for all of us, unless Christ comes first. And no matter how you get there, the Lord has a glorious transformation waiting for you. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trump will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Listen, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, the resurrection changes our outlook. It gives us victory. We live a life of victory and joy and hope in the future in the midst of whatever is going on. We have this deep in our hearts. Edersheim again says, To all time, this is the sign which the Christ has given, which he still gives to every evil and adulterous generation, to all sin lovers and God forsakers. They will destroy so far as their power reaches the Christ crucify him, give his words the lie, suppress, sweep away Christianity, and they will not succeed. He shall triumph as on that first Easter day, so now and ever in history, he raises up the temple which they break down. The resurrection changes everything. If you believe... And the death of Christ on the cross on your behalf. And if you believe that God raised him from the dead in victory. If you believe as the disciples did. This man, this message can change you too. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved because of Christ's resurrection believers have the hope that their faith is not in vain that their sin has been paid for that all that Jesus taught all that Jesus did is true and the knowledge of Jesus resurrection causes us to praise God to realize that it's our hope of salvation and to tell others the good news how could we possibly be silent About this kind of news we're desperate to tell others that he is risen I just want to encourage you brothers and sisters live in light of the resurrection let your countenance show the hope that you have in Christ the transformation that has taken place and if you've not yet allowed the work of Christ the truth of his resurrection to penetrate your heart and change your life today is the day Let us pray. Father, thank you. We want to thank you with all that we are, with every breath, with not just the words thank you, not just our weak and and feeble prayers, but with lives empowered by your indwelling Holy Spirit. We want to live lives of gratitude for you. We want to be a living offering. And Father, I pray that people would be able to see in us as a church what resurrection looks like, what it looks like to be a new creature in Christ, what new life looks like, what this glorious hope that we have is. Help us not to be timid in proclaiming the incredible news that Christ not only died taking on the sins of the world, but that he rose again. We pray all these things in the name of your Son. Amen.